Welcome to Grass Talk Radio. This show is for people who play bluegrass music and anybody who might want to. Howdy folks and welcome back to the podcast. It's funny I use the word folks. I use the word folks because I heard Bill Monroe say that an awful lot. Howdy folks, howdy. And, you know, bluegrass really is a folk music. I was telling, uh, talking to my son on the way to school. We have these little conversations. I've got 15 minutes to do what I call pre-brainwashing before I drop him off at school. And we talk about all kind of things. A, a lot of times the conversation starts on a Thursday or Friday and I'll say, Hey Jackson, you know, I've got a, I got to come up with something to do on the podcast. Do you have any suggestions of things, something I should talk about on the podcast? And he gives me ideas. Somehow or another today we got to talking about was what is folk? And because he asked me the day before is bluegrass folk music. And I sort of said, at first I said, no, bluegrass isn't folk music. Like bluegrass is its own thing and folk is something else. But then I got, you know, thinking about it later and thinking, well, bluegrass sort of is a folk music, but it's not, it's, it's actually a, you know, an invented commercial form of music, but it's become a little folk and it is certainly rooted in folk music. So we were talking today about just what exactly is a folk. <laughs> and, uh, there used to be a show on WRFG 89.3 FM in Atlanta that was called what the folk. And it was a folk music show. So Jackson and I were talking about what is folk. And, uh, I, I was telling him, you know, that, uh, I got to talking about the Volkswagen, you know, the people wagon. And I had a several Volkswagens over the years. I had an old, I started out with a 68 super beetle. And I, back before that we had a 63 beetle our family did. And I can remember being small enough to fit in that little area back in, in what we call the way back. It was behind the back seat. I mean, a tiny little storage compartment behind the back seat where the back glass kind of curved upwards. And I can remember riding around, you know, sitting in the way back and it was this real scratchy carpet type stuff. And of course, Volkswagens always smelled like horse hair. Or something. I don't know what they stuffed the seats with, but so we were talking about folk and Volk and all that kind of stuff. And it got me to thinking that bluegrass is a very folk music. Maybe it's not, you know, the Weavers and the Kingston Trio, that packaged folk stuff. And it's certainly not even, you know, Doc Watson type folk, Philadelphia Folk Festival type folk. It's it's not even, it's not that. But it's related to it. And we're all folk. I'm folk, you're folk. If you're into bluegrass, you're folk, okay? Uh, folk in, as I determined, we're the people. You might call us the little people. Jackson's gotten really into classical music. Not sure where this came from, except 
about I know it it started with during breakfast I have an old record player in the kitchen and just a one of these little suitcase type record players I think JR who was a DJ on WRFG gave me he bought that thing at a at a silent auction that WRFG was holding and he gave it to me I think for my birthday or something anyway I still use that thing, and one morning I put on the 1812 Overture by Tchaikovsky and was playing that because Jackson was really into making tin soldiers at that time and playing these little soldiers and stuff. And I said, here, here's some music. And we talked a little bit about the 1812 Overture and, you know, the Russians fighting the French under Napoleon and all this stuff. And he listened to that thing, and ever since then, he's just been consumed with classical music. It's very, very strange. It's almost like the consumption that overtook me when I ran into bluegrass. Now, I don't know if he'll turn out to be a classical musician, but the kid is just crazy over it. And he knows so much more about it than I do. So he was, you know, asking me about folk music and his bluegrass folk music. And I was trying to explain to him that, you know, putting it in classical terms, this would actually be Baroque, but I was talking about Bach. And I said, you know, Bach, he, he made his gig was playing for princes and dukes and kings and the church. That Those were where the paying gigs were. They had the big organs and... You know, they had the harpsichords and they, you know, all this stuff. That's where the bucks were. So that's where he played. And that's where he could sell his, you know, his wares. But at the same time, that was not the only music going on. It's, it's, I think people often think that people will say, well, you know, Bach is from this year to this year. And that was the music going on. But you have to think that. You know, in the next village over in the tavern, there was music going on. And that was the folk music. You know, there was a, a, a fiddle player or some guy tooting some kind of a horn or playing his lute or whatever. And that was his gig. You know, the old saying, you know, if you're going to dance, you got to pay the fiddler. There were working musicians. They might be a a surf or a farmer during the day, but at night they would go down to the tavern and play their fiddle or eight or whatever, you know, all those old folk instruments. And that was going on simultaneous to the Baroque and classical music that was, that we're now taught was the music of that time period. But that wasn't the only music of the time period any more than today. You know, you can go see the New York Philharmonic and somebody at some point in the future will say that was the music of the time. But that's not the music I'm playing and it's not the music you're playing. So we just got to talking about folk and was bluegrass folk music in. Yes, it is a folk music because folk play it and we folks like it. Howdy folks, howdy.
but it's not folk music in the the way all music today has to be defined. It's got we got to know what what bin do we put that record in? Do we put it under folk or do we put it under country? Hey, uh, hint record companies put it under bluegrass because that's what it is. Anyway, I don't know how I got on all this. I thought I I should in this episode clear up something that might possibly be in the minds of 1% of the listeners. And that is, I've made multiple references over these many episodes to the band Cedar Hill that I played in. And I've told people that I joined Cedar Hill in, you know, in the early 80s, played 27 and a half years of Cedar Hill. And in episode 33, I... I had a little audio track of Doc Watson recording his liner notes for an album that we did. So I keep talking about Cedar Hill and I want to go ahead and just clarify for history purposes, (laughs) trivial history purposes, that there are two Cedar Hills and we knew this, you know, Cedar Hill, the band I played in started in, 1976 and the tune Cedar Hill, which was written by David Grisman was the origin of the name. In other words, they named the band after the song. And if, if, if you want to dig into that a little bit, supposedly, um, well, I, I won't go in. I'll let David Grisman tell his own stories, but David Grisman wrote a tune called Cedar Hill. And I, think there's an early recording of that. Uh, he's playing maybe, I forget who with Red Allen, maybe, uh, I don't know, back in 1966. There's there's a record that Grisman put out called Early Dog. And Cedar Hill is on there. And Cedar Hill popped up as a banjo tune in Peter Wernick's famous Oak publication entitled Bluegrass Banjo one of the very first banjo books I ever got. And that tune is in there, Cedar Hill. Well, anyway, people were playing the tune Cedar Hill, and I guess the guys in my Cedar Hill, I I do know that they formed at Julian's Tavern in Decatur, Georgia, out of a jam session. And in episode 33, I was talking about how bands get started. Well, I was there at the jam on the night that I heard these guys discussing forming a band and picking a name. I I remember them talking, kicking around band name ideas. So I'm pretty certain of the date of this, that they formed the band and they ended up calling it Cedar Hill. I think because the mandolin player, Chip Dunbar, you know, liked the tune and he just tossed it out. Hey, what if we call it Cedar Hill? And next thing you know, there was a band in the Atlanta area called Cedar Hill. Back in those days, this is 1976, there was no internet. There was no, um, there was, it was difficult to know if there was a band out in Seattle who had the same name. It just, it just wasn't that easy to find out. You could, your, your main resource was traveling around to bluegrass festivals and festival flyers, but there was also the magazine Bluegrass Unlimited. Great magazine. It was the only magazine 
for bluegrass, absolutely just for bluegrass, but Bluegrass Unlimited, and I'm not sure if they still do it, but I think they do, publishes a band directory in one issue out of 12. Every year, band directory. So if you want to be listed in the band directory, you just send them your information. Say, hey, we're a band. Here's our name. Here's our contact information. That was about the only source you had to know if some band out in Missouri might be, you know, operating with the same name. And I remember that when I joined Cedar Hill in 1983, I remember looking at the band directory in Bluegrass Unlimited. Everybody call it BU. Looking at BU at the band directory, and there we are, Cedar Hill, Jim Duck Adkins, Mary Oak Road, Marietta, Georgia, and the phone number. And right next to it was Cedar Hill Grass. Cedar Hill, then Cedar Hill Grass. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. There's another band with a name kind of like ours. So there was this band, Cedar Hill Grass. Didn't think anything of it because they were out in the Midwest and we were down in the Southeast and we just didn't cross paths. There was never any confusion whatsoever that I'm aware of in those days. But when we get up, maybe this is maybe around the year 98, maybe 2000, maybe 2002, somewhere along in that time period, I'm still in the band Cedar Hill. And one time we were playing at a festival and I think it was the Marietta Bluegrass Festival um, when Jack Masters was running the festival. And we're at the festival, and I wander back to the the table, the ever-present flyer table where promoters come to a bluegrass festival, and they put all their flyers out and set a brick on top of them so they don't blow off. And if you want to know what's going on in your area and plan some future bluegrass festival activity, you go to the table and you start snatching up a stack of flyers. And, you know, I'm, I'm just picking up, oh, this one, this one looks pretty good. And you can see on the flyer who is going to be there. There'll be pictures and photographs of the bands and that kind of thing. And I'm walking along there just, ah, I might go to that one. Oh, that looks pretty good. Grab up about eight flyers. And I look down and there's our picture on a flyer. Nice yellow paper. Such, such festival, or I'm not sure. I think it might've been at a place called Hoofers. Might not have actually been a festival, but a show or something. And there we are. There's that, that's me. I see myself in that picture. There's a picture there of Cedar Hill. So I grabbed that one. I didn't even know we were going to be playing there. And a little bit later, I was back at the record table sitting around where we peddled our CDs and that kind of thing. And the duck, who was our banjo player and did all the booking, was sitting there. And I said, hey, duck, when did you book this? And I handed him the flyer. He looked at it and he's like, I, I don't know anything about that. I'm like, well, that's us. Clearly. <laughs> anyway, this is how we found out there was another Cedar Hill. And basically the story that I have is that 
the band Cedar Hill Grass ran along for many years. In fact, I think they formed before, uh, probably in the late 60s. Cedar Hill Grass was tooling around, doing their thing out in the Midwest. And we were Cedar Hill in Atlanta. Well, uh, this outfit, Hoofers Pickin' Barn or Music Barn or whatever it was, I think it was in Noonan, Georgia, booked Cedar Hill, the other Cedar Hill. And I, I guess they just didn't, didn't know the difference and went on the Internet and searched for Cedar Hill and downloaded our picture off of our website and put our picture, but booked them. And we, we thought, you know, we got a little bit of a problem here because some of our fans are likely to go there and then it's not us. This is, we need, we need to solve this problem. But as I understand the story, the, uh, the, uh, person that operated the band Cedar Hill grass, I, I've heard that he retired. I'm, I'm not sure exactly what happened, but he began to play him and his band. Very good band, by the way. Excellent band. And, and the guy's a mantle player and uh, he plays a lore, not the lore, a lore. Good guy. He started taking it on the road. You know, he was at a time in his life where he could play festivals and go to things and travel and, and started showing up down in our area. So Cedar Hill grass was overlapping with Cedar Hill. And he also got picked up by, I think I want to say, Hey Holler Records, but could have been Pine Castle. I'm not sure, but kind of a record deal and shortened the name. I don't know whose decision it was to shorten the name from Cedar Hill grass to just Cedar Hill, but they became Cedar Hill. And if you go on YouTube and punch in Cedar Hill, you're going to get a lot of videos of them. It's not, you know, there are two Cedar Hills. So this became an issue for us because it caused confusion among the fans in our area. Well, we actually had a, a registered trademark on the name Cedar Hill. Our guitar player had filed that at some point along the way, sent in a little money or something, and and it was a registered trademark, but but still, it's their name and it's our name. It, it, it was just all really confusing. I remember going to their website one time, and they had a little comment section, and I could see comments entered in by visitors to the website who were clearly talking about us because... When they're when they're making a comment like, "Oh, we saw you play at such and such and had a good time, and we really enjoyed the duck." Well, I know they were talking about us because our banjo player, well known for being able to do his kind of a Daffy Duck, Donald Duck type of voice, and that's why they call him Jim Duck Adkins. I'm going to have him on the show one of these days, and he'll he'll do some of that duck for you. I. I can't imagine he wouldn't. Anyway, people would remember us solely because of that. They would go, ah, I can't remember your, the band name, but it was that band with the duck, you know. So I knew over on this this other Cedar Hills website, people are commenting about the duck. I, I know that they're confused. They think they're talking to us, but they're talking to them. I'm sure it confused everybody in that band a great deal when they came down to our area. In fact, I had a... Uh, one of our good friends and a longtime fan of Cedar Hill in Atlanta 
came came up to us one night at a gig and said, I went to see y'all over at such and such, and it wasn't y'all. And I was like, well, you know, I don't really know what to do about this. Now in the internet age, it's pretty easy when you're thinking up a band name. You can Google it. You can search for it on YouTube. You can pretty quickly find out if anybody's using it. You can go on Facebook and punch it in, and if up pops another band, well, hey, we're boys. We got to keep digging for a name. We don't want to use the same name as you know, those guys out in Seattle or in Washington state or whatever. It's easier to determine if you're, if you're using the same names, but back then it was not easy. And here, you know, Cedar Hill had 30 years of using that name. And so did they not technically exactly the same name. They were Cedar Hill grass. And then it, anyway, it was all very confusing. So just to, because I put, I've put a few references to Cedar Hill. I want you to know that the Cedar Hill that I played with is the Cedar Hill from Atlanta that started in 1976 and is still performing to this day. And if you're around Atlanta, you can go see them. I, I presume the confusion continues to this day, although I don't see the other Cedar Hill playing around the Southeast as much here lately. Anyway, that explains that. Don't be confused. There are two. There there could be five Cedar Hills for all I know. There might be one in Sweden. And my friend Bo Gustafsson can let me know if that's true or not. Anyway, so hopefully that clears up the Cedar Hill confusion. Now, in episode 33, I spent some time talking about um, starting a part-time band. And I promised some upcoming episodes to give you some some of my experience and tools to try to successfully do that. Now I want to make it clear in this episode that I'm not going to cover everything. It's impossible to cover everything, but I'll give you some food for thought. And I am working from a little list of topics, but I don't know precisely where I'm going to go with this. It's kind of like improvising your break. I'm going to improvise this, but I am working from a little list of topics that I want to at least touch on. And so this is really a continuation of episode 33. And 33 was a continuation of some earlier episodes, uh, I think 13 and 30, which I mentioned in that one. So I jump around some and I do that because not everybody's interested in starting a band. And if you're not, you might just go, well, I'm not going to listen to this one, but later on you might. So if if you're not one of those people that have any notion ever whatsoever of starting a band or getting into a band, that's cool. I respect that. Then, you know, this might not be your episode, but you might listen to it anyway. You might learn something about those bands that are out there doing it and how they operate. So the first thing, first topic that I want to cover in this, how to manage your part-time band is the topic of organization. I mean, for a band to exist, it has to be organized in some form. So what is that form? And there, this, this falls into basically two primary divisions. There is, and it, and it boils down to this, who's in charge? Do we have a monarchy? Do we have a king? and subjects or are we a 
democracy. This is what it boils down to. And while not getting political here, I'm just going to state the, the reality of band operation is that most bands, I, I can't think of any bands that don't fall into one of these two categories. There's either the boss employee type relationship. Let's say you're Bill Monroe and you hire bluegrass boys and you fire bluegrass boys and who calls the shots? Bill Monroe. So that is the monarchy type organization. What I like to call the boss band. There's a boss in the band. You want to be in the band? That's great. It could be the greatest experience of your life, but it's organized under the principle that the boss makes the decisions, makes the major decisions. Doesn't make every decision, but sometimes they delegate their authority to the players. But that's one type of organization, the monarchy, the boss. The other type is what I call the democratic band. And the democratic band are people who get together and want to form a band and they feel like that the best way to operate the band is to make decisions as a group and, you know, try to get everybody on board with something before they go for it. And that's probably the most common type of part-time and semi-pro band. I would say that most pro bands, if, if we take bands in three primary categories of semi-pro, you know, they've got a day job, but they play professionally part-time. There's that type of band. And then you have the professional band who make their living from it. And then there's the, kind of like the porch picker band. That That's the band that doesn't really, not too interested in playing professionally or making money with it, but they're still a band. So that's sort of the hierarchy, which I've discussed in previous episodes. But most all of those bands operate on a kind of a democratic style of government. That is, nobody's in charge. and it, Nobody's really calling all the shots and, okay, when it comes down to it, who makes the final decision? There is not that person. And that's been most of the bands that I have been in. I have played with some bands that were a monarchy, a, a boss employee type band. I've done that too. But the majority of my time has been in a more democratic type operation. And that is very common, but it, it presents some difficulties, but it also pre presents some, uh, let's put it this way. It has pros and cons. I, I often, I get frustrated sometimes being in a democratic band where everything's got to be decided by the group. It gets frustrating because sometimes you don't get your way. The thing you really want to do, nobody else wants to do, or the majority doesn't want to do, and so it doesn't happen. So sometimes the democratic way, you know, kind of, it, it frustrates the people who their decisions are not implemented. And that's true in, you know, full-blown democratic-type governments, too. But it is a way to make things happen. 
it is a way, if we all agree upon it, if five people come together and say, we're going to start a band, immediately you've got decisions to be made. What are you going to call the band? What songs are you going to play? Where are we going to play? How much are we going to charge? What are we going to wear? These sort of issues begin to pop up instantly. So do you decide that by the boss decides everything? You know, the big man, he makes all the decisions. And we do what he says or else. You know, Bill Monroe says wear a hat. So we, I got to go get me a hat. If I'm going to play with Bill, I got to have a hat. And I can't wear short pants to the gig. If you accept that arrangement, that's the arrangement and you should abide by it. But in a democratic type organization, what happens is kind of what happened in, in Pony Express. I talked about us buying matching shirts. Well, we all talked about it. Nobody, you know, said, I'm in charge and you guys are going to wear this shirt. We decided it as a group. Three out of four of us had to agree. And that's probably, I, I don't know, it might have been four out of four. Sometimes you get lucky and everybody's on the same wavelength and things move more smoothly. And that goes back to the selecting band members. The more that you can find people that are thinking like you, you know, the more easily the decisions will be made. And what I've noticed in, in bands, a lot of times there's, there's the prime movers of the band. It's probably the person that kind of got the ball rolling in the first place. Um, I have been in that role in some of the bands that I've been in over the years, certainly with Pony Express, that was true. You know, I don't think Pony Express would have started had I not, you know, pushed, pushed that. But I also was not the boss. So that's where the conflict comes in sometimes that you'll have like the prime movers who get it started and it was their idea, but then they don't always get to implement their ideas. They're, they can't be an autocratic, you know, dictator to the other members. They have to, you know, tamp down their desire to have everything they want and go along with the wishes of the group. And probably this is why a lot of groups end up breaking up is that, you know, the, the prime movers who got it all rolling could be one person, could be two, could be three or four who got it going and then they operated by sort of democratic, we'll take a vote type of um, decision-making process. And then things began to happen that didn't suit their vision. And, you know, tensions arise and, and band, people quit and bands break up and things like that. But those are the two primary ways. You can either have a boss-employee type relationship or you can have a group decision-making process. And that's the way I, that I'm going to primarily talk about here because it's the most common. You know, to if you're going to go out and start a band, you're probably going to end up with one of those democratic-type bands where everybody's involved in the decisions. So that's sort of the way, uh, you know, families run this way too. Sometimes there's the boss man and he, he calls all the shots in the family. And, and sometimes things are decided on a sort of group basis. And sometimes certain members of the band carry a little more weight than others. 
you know, in a family, when they're sitting around the dinner table trying to decide on where to go on vacation, mom and dad's um, decision will, their wishes will carry more weight than the three-year-old, you know? So sometimes you'll be, there'll be a kind of a pecking order within a band. You know, maybe the people who have played more, that have more experience, uh, more years at it, and a reputation of making good decisions, you know, that sort of thing. Those people a lot of times will carry more sway with the newer, less experienced members. You know, you'll have a guy that's, um, you know, maybe played mandolin for a couple of years, never been in a band before, and this band forms up where, you know, there's a couple of guys in there that have been playing for 30 years and they've, they've got a lot of this stuff figured out. A lot of times they will, you know, take a more subservient role. Even though they have a vote, they know that not to push certain issues because they don't really have the the clout to you know, get their way on things. And, and sometimes, you know, it's wise just to say, well, you know what, they're talking about a PA here and they're discussing the PA and I don't know beans about PAs, never owned one. Don't know how they work. I don't, you know, I'm just going to kind of listen to what the other people are saying. And if these couple of guys over here that have a lot of experience, they decide that that's the way we ought to go. I'm going to just trust them and go with it. So you get that, you know, it's not always five people sitting in a room, you know, digging in their heels and, you know, fighting over things. A lot of times there are certain issues that you allow other people to kind of drive the bus on that issue. And this comes down into um, the roles of each member in a band. And I'm going to, let's say we have five people or four or five people that get together and if got the idea to start a band and more than likely they're going to go with the democratic type of institution where they decide as a group, if enough people go, yeah, that sounds all right. Then that becomes the way they go in picking a band name. And you guys think we ought to play that festival? These so-and-so ask us to do this thing. What do y'all think? The, what do y'all think? That's a democratic band. Bill Monroe didn't ask, what do y'all think? You know? He operated under a different model, an autocratic monarch type boss um, employee type relationship. And frankly, I, I understand why those type of organizations exist because they're easier in terms of making quick decisions. Somebody calls you up and says, Hey, are you guys available on the 23rd? We're having this little thing. Well, if they call a dictatorial monarchy or organization, probably the person that answers the phone can say yes or no immediately. But with a democratic organization, it goes like this. Well, uh, yeah, that sounds pretty good. L let me check with the guys. Well, the checking with the guys process takes time. You got to call everybody. You got to send them a Facebook message. You got to send them an email. You're waiting on, I'm, you know, I, so when, uh, you know, Randy said yes, and I haven't heard from Mike. And then you get people to say, well, I'll do it if Mike will do it. And, 
it just goes round and round and round. And if you're the person in the Democratic band that relies on the group to make all decisions, you can get very frustrated because you just want to put this thing to bed. You just want to tell the guy yes or no. And you want to be able to throw out a price quickly. <laughs> That's why I said in episode uh, 33 that it's good that you talk about these things before they come up. Talk about your price. Talk about how far you'll travel. Talk about, do you want to play in smoky beer joints? Do you want to play in churches? Do you want to talk about these things in advance? That helps whoever the booking person is to make quicker decisions. So let's talk about roles. So in the band, you form this little democratic organization and you're ostensibly making group decisions, but some of them kind of allowing the more experience to lead the way and more on, on creative things like, you know, like choosing what songs to play and things like that. You're taking everybody's opinions more into account. So there's some flexibility in how democratic it is, but in the end you all pretend that it's a democracy and at least go along with the idea that the group made the decision. We decided. And listen, that can be really helpful because when you're when you're being told what to do, sometimes it's not that enjoyable. But if at the end of the day, even if you didn't have a hard opinion one way or the other about a particular topic or issue, but the group decided, hey, we're going to play over at, uh, you know, that cave in Alabama. Once the decision's made, then it's made and you all agree to that that process. And so from that point on, things are smooth because the decision is made where, where they, where the problems come in is the decision making. That's where all the problem once generally speaking, once a decision has been reached, everybody just goes with it, you know? So these decisions get made by a group of people. And in that band, everybody sort of will fall into their role in the band. You're, and I'm not talking about musically. Let's set all that aside because that's, that's in many ways the easy part. The guy's a fiddle player. He plays the fiddle part. You know, he's, he fiddles. That's easy. But um, where it gets sticky is things such as the PA. Well, who owns it? Do we all own it? I mean, by, let's say a fiddle player has been playing six months and he joins the band. Does he now own a piece of that PA? Who owns the PA? You know, that's an issue. And I'm, I'm not going to go into great depth in this episode about that. I will. I will talk about that later because it's an ongoing issue with a lot of bands. Who owns the PA? How do we get there? What about travel? Do we get reimbursed for gas money? Where's this money coming from? How's the money get split? How much, you know, if the band goes and plays for 400 bucks, how is that money divided? Those things are important. They're important because if you don't discuss them, somebody's going to get their feelings hurt and is going to get mad. And you might lose a good musician because a little thing like talking about how the money gets split was not discussed. And I'll give you a little example of this. 
uh, for about eight years, Pony Express played a Thursday Thursday night gig. It started out at a place called Motorheads for about four years, and then we did four years at a Mexican restaurant called El Puente. Both these were in McDonough, Georgia. That was pretty much the only gig of Pony Express during those eight years. We had a regular Thursday night gig. And I remember very early on, we had a tip bucket. And, uh, you know, I've, as I said in episode 33, I put it out there as a service to the public. You know, there are people that want to tip you and who am I to say no. But that tip money can help boost your income. I mean, I think, you know, we were getting 300 bucks. So you split that five ways, you're down to 60 bucks a piece. And if, if there's 50 bucks in that tip bucket at the end of the night, everybody just made 70 bucks. That's the way I look at it. It's bonus, you know, and it makes it worth more worth doing. But then again, you have some of the members of the band that that $10 that they would get out of that tip bucket at the end of the night is more important or less important too. You know, if, if a guy has a job as a computer programmer making $70,000 a year, that 10 bucks doesn't mean as much to him. But if another member of your band is trying to scratch out a living, teaching banjo lessons and guitar lessons at music stores and playing in three bands, that 10 bucks means more to him. And then you got another guy who's a retired guy and he's, he's got a retirement check coming in. He's got social security coming in. The 10 bucks doesn't mean as much to him. So then at the end of the night, somebody starts counting up what's in the tip bucket and making five little piles out of it. And up walks one of the members and goes, you know what? I think we ought to just give that, take them tips and give it to our waitress. Now you got an issue because you have conflicting ideas of what the tips are for. You've got one guy who doesn't really care about the 10 bucks. He's doing this for the love of it. And he does love it. And then you got another guy who's thinking my gas tank is empty. And when I leave here, I'm going across the road immediately and popping 10 bucks worth of gas into my SUV so that tomorrow I can drive to the North side to play with them other three guys that I do every Friday night, you know, that's where conflicts arise. So just make the decisions in advance. Then you, the last thing you want is our discussions and, you know, conflicts and differences of opinion settled at 1130 at night in a bar. That's not the time to make these decisions, make them beforehand. Tip buckets are really common with bands. Just have a little discussion about it. What type of gigs is it appropriate to have a tip bucket? And what is it not? If you're playing, if you're asked to play the old time music day at the local Baptist church and you, you get up and you play a few old gospel tunes during the thing. And then after the, uh, after the thing, they have a little picnic and you might sell one or two CDs and they give you a love offering. That's probably not, it's probably not appropriate to right beside you up at the altar, have the tip bucket. But if you're playing some beer joint, I think it's perfectly appropriate. You know, people expect it to be there and they want to chunk some money in there. So decide these things in advance and then decide what do we do with that tip money? 
in a couple of possibilities are at the end of the night, you might decide this at the end of the night, whatever's in there, we split five ways because there's five of us. And if there's anything left over, like it won't divide evenly, you know, everybody gets six bucks and we got $1 left. We'll give that to the waitress, the one that's been serving, you know, that type of thing. What I've always recommended when that discussion came up was, look, you guys tip the waitress individually because you're paying individually for whatever you're eating and drinking, you know, just handle your tip on your own because you might have a guy in the band that didn't drink any beer all night long. He's a teetotaler. Why should he tip the waitress for bringing you beer all night long? You know what I mean? But these things are my, my major point is these things are better decided beforehand. And if they can't be decided beforehand, don't decide them, you know, spur of the moment at a gig, you know, just let happen, whatever happened. And then maybe at the next rehearsal, talk about it and then make some sort of decision. Anyway, little things like tip buckets can become an issue and try to avoid that by a little bit of pre-planning, a little bit of thinking about it in advance and, you know, respect the wishes and the needs and desires and things like that of all of your members, because everybody in a part-time band is not in the same situation. Okay. Enough about that. So let's continue on with roles in the roles. You'll have some, some members of the band will be really good at the musical side of it. Maybe they're more experienced. Maybe they, they know more about, you know, like, music theory type stuff. And they, you know, they understand music a little bit more than maybe some of the others. So let's say your band is working on singing some harmony parts and one of your members, and this was true in Cedar Hill in the early days, one of our members was a choral director at a high school. He's now a choral director at a major university in Kentucky. He was the go-to guy. That was his role in the band was to straighten us out musically, you know, help us not sing doubling notes and help us figure out our harmony parts and help us sing better. That was his role. That was not when we're performing, but when we're practicing, that was his role. My role on the other hand, in that particular band in Cedar Hill was, I was more like the promoter guy. You know, I was the guy who put together our first website. I was the guy who would you know, designed the brochures and flyers. And back in those days, we had a mailing list and where we used to send out postcards to our mailing list about gigs. And I was a printer. So I designed and printed those postcards that we used to send out. And one of our other band members, he did the mailing list. He had a little computer and he worked, he did the mailing list and made the labels for me. So he had a role and his role was also that of managing the PA. He was the guy that fixed stuff when a wire was broken. He sort of managed the repair side of keeping the trailer, you know, the bearings on the trailer axle greased and that kind of thing. And then another of our members, he gravitated more towards the transportation end of it. You know, he'd make sure that the tires on the trailer were good and that the vehicles were you know, in such a way that we could get to the gig and the major aspects of the PA were kind of fell under his little 
area of expertise. Then the fifth guy, he was the booking and contact guy. It, it was never any question. If somebody came up to me at a gig and said, Hey, are y'all able to do such, such, I just say, uh, see that guy over there. Talk to Jimmy. He handles all that for us. So it's good to subdivide your, the things that need to be done in a band and everybody can do something. Some people are more useful in certain areas than others. I mean, Jimmy was awesome about keeping a calendar and about making callbacks to people and keeping, keeping us informed about what was going on and sending the contract out. And he was great at that. Bob and Fred were great at, you know, keeping all the gear working. I mean, we never had PA problems because they would anticipate them and fix them before they happened. You know, when it, when a tweeter blew in one of our big old Tapco speakers, you didn't have to worry about it. Bob and Fred were going to take care of it. When it came time to have new band pictures made and where we're going to get them printed and, you know, that kind of thing. Don't worry, Brad will take care of it. Now, everybody had input into these decisions. We weren't just five little autonomous operators, but, you know, I didn't just do anything on my own without talking about it. But things that were of a printing and promotional public relations, I remember fixing up um, on, on several occasions what we used to call press kits where you fix up a song list an equipment list and a list of clients that you've worked for and some promotional material, all that stuff. I did all that, but I did it with their full knowledge and approval. And Jeff, um, the guy that I talked about who kind of kept us on track musically, I can remember him bringing, we used to do a, an acapella version of the song Dixie. Beautiful. That arrangement originated as a choral arrangement. I remember him bringing literally the sheet music to that. Of course, we couldn't read it. Well, I could read some treble clef, but the other guys couldn't read it. But, you know, he taught us to sing more or less that version that they were singing in the chorus. And it worked out as a great bluegrass acapella thing. They put it on an album. Anyway, everybody has their strengths and weaknesses. So as you sit around as a group, try to figure out what role each person has. And if a person doesn't have a role, maybe he can be the helper for the other guy. You know, like if you got that, you know, kid that only been playing a couple of years and he, he, he doesn't, he's not the guy, he's not the guy you want booking the gigs. He doesn't know how to fix the PA. Well, maybe he could be the helper guy, you know, to help the dude. You know, so try to figure out a role for everybody. But I think it's very important in your democratic band that you analyze the roles of the various people and put people in into roles that they want to do and that they're best at. And your band will rock along much better. So anyway, that gets us started in this whole series of podcasts about organizing and managing your part-time band. In the future, I'm going to touch on some things like booking and contracts. Like, uh, you know, a lot of bands run around and they say, well, we don't have a contract, you know. And uh, let me just make this statement. If you have ever played anywhere for money, 
And, and it doesn't even have to be money. If somebody says to you, hey, we're having this backyard party, will you guys come pick and we'll feed you? And you say, yes, you have a contract. May not be a written contract, but you have a verbal contract. So we'll talk about contracts and in the future thing, we're going to talk about rehearsing. And, and this can be really important, how to rehearse your band. We're going to talk about money. How do you manage the money in your band? And PAs, uh, just a whole, I got a whole long list of things. So if you're that person out there in a band and wanting to hear the experiences of somebody that's done it for 40 years, then those episodes will be of interest to you. If you're not, they still might be interesting. And I hope you'll hang in there. I am also going to do some other things in the future episodes. I've got a whole laundry list of things, the topics that I want to expand on a little bit. So, you know, if you're that lone picker, I haven't forgotten about you. We're still going to talk about uh, things like how to practice and, you know, those, those sorts of things. And before I leave you in this episode, I want to talk about one other little, other little thing. And that is the interviews that I have done in uh, quite a few of the podcasts so far. I know a lot of people like interviews and it's a relief. As I've said in a previous episode, it's a relief from listening to me talk endlessly. And I, I encountered a little snag in doing interviews. I've got probably six or eight people kind of were in the talking stages and they've said, yes, they, they will do an interview. And up to this point, I have if I didn't do the interview in person at my kitchen table for anybody that was a long distance away, I've done the interviews over Skype. Well, not too long ago, just about two weeks ago, I was all set up to do an interview and I launched Skype and the software says, Oh, you don't have the latest version of Skype. Do you want to download it? And I had gotten that message three or four times in the past and I just hit cancel. But this time I thought, well, I suppose I probably ought to do the thing. So I said, clicked yes. And so it downloads the latest version and then I have to restart my Mac and I crank it up and I launch Skype. I'm going to test out, you know, just I'm setting up the stuff because I'm going to do the interview the next day. I launch it, and the first thing I get is a message that says, Sorry, your computer software is not compatible with this version of Skype. You must upgrade your system software. And I'm like, oh, God, here we go. So I'm like, well, maybe I can just throw it away and re-download the old version. And I fooled around and fooled around and fooled around and fooled around. Never solved it. So for some reason, Skype, Skype doesn't love me anymore. And so I just chunk Skype. I got rid of it completely and I'm experimenting with some new ways of doing it. I actually did, uh, the interview, the most recent one with, uh, using Facebook chat, which I didn't even know existed and it worked almost exactly like Skype. So I may do that, but things have changed a little bit. And so had a few technical problems with trying to do the long distance thing. And back in the old days, I could have done it over the telephone, but I now have an internet type telephone. And when I hook my recorder up to it, it, it was, it won't work. 
Anyway, had a few technical problems there. Don't worry, there are some interviews coming for those of you who don't want to listen to me talk quite so much. Um, also, the other problem that has occurred with interviews is I think it's just summertime. People are busier and it's harder to get somebody to commit to a date and time. Anyway, got some people lined up, said, yes, I definitely want to do it. And so, you know, keep your ear to the ground for the upcoming interviews. There will be more interviews in the future when I get these technical and scheduling problems solved. In the meantime, I'm just going to continue on with the weekly episode. And I appreciate you listening. Number one, just knowing that there's somebody out there on the other end actually listening to this is what keeps me going. You know, setting aside all monetary concerns. And however, in that vein, thank you to everybody who has maybe gone over to the website, bradleylaird.com and picked up something because all that money goes in the same pot and without the money, you know, can't keep going. So anyway, just want to say thank you to everybody who continues to support what I'm up to. And I mentioned, I have mentioned several times in some previous episodes that if you're a band with some material, uh, you know, uh, a tune that you own the rights to that you wrote or it's public domain, uh, get in contact with me. I, I had a guy just recently, um, we've been talking about a particular thing and I, there's a CD on my on the way to me right now from somebody that wants to do that. So just keep that in mind. I'd like to stick some music on here. It's a good way to end out a show and you don't always have to listen to us play little Maggie on every episode. Anyway, thanks for listening. Thanks for all your support. It means a lot to me. And even just an email to let me know you're out there and you're listening, uh, goes a long way and I appreciate it. And I'll talk to you in the next podcast. 